0: beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. I've been reading a new book by astrophysicist Emma Chapman called First Light, Switching on the Stars at the Dawn of Time. This episode isn't a book review per se, rather a reflection about her book. It has caused me to think more deeply on the nature of the relationship between what the Bible has to say about the origins and structure of the heavens and earth, and what modern scientific paradigms tell us. First of all, Emma's book is remarkably accessible, and you certainly don't have to have a background in astrophysics to understand it. She has a remarkable talent for telling the story of the stars she studies and in making analogies that are able to be grasped by a wider lay audience. But the curious thing about the stars that Emma studies is that for the most part, no one has ever seen one. These mysterious stars are called Population 3 stars, and they are believed to be the stars that existed at the very beginning of the universe. So briefly, what are Population 3 stars? Let's start with Population 1 and 2 stars first. Population 1 stars are stars that have high metallicity content. That is, these stars contain an abundance of elements heavier in atomic weight than hydrogen and helium elements like calcium, carbon, nitrogen, etc. Population 2 stars are stars with much less metallicity in them. Both Population 1 and Population 2 stars have been empirically verified to exist, but not so with Population 3 stars. These stars allegedly contained only hydrogen and helium, with maybe trace amounts of lithium, as the early universe had not sufficient time nor a sufficient means to create heavier elements. If the early universe was only comprised of lighter elements, so the theory goes, then the first stars must have only been made up of these lighter elements. But where are they today? Chapman cites astronomer Howard Bond, who published a paper on Population 3 stars in 1981 titled, Where is Population 3? Bond's conclusion, quote, They're not out there, end quote. And here in 2022, they're still eluding the best scientific instruments and the brightest astrophysicist's eyes. No one has yet to discover a single population three star. In a subsequent chapter, Chapman breaks down the basics of how astronomers believe stars form. The chapter is titled A Lucky Cloud of Gas. She imagines the formation of the very first star in this chapter. Hundreds of thousands of years after the Big Bang, she tells us, the initial event of the universe, there eventually existed primordial clouds of hydrogen atoms of various sizes and temperatures floating about in the early cosmos. The larger the cloud, the more gravitational force exerted on the atoms as a whole. Individual atoms with less kinetic energy would not be able to escape the gravity of the cloud, much like you could not jump high enough to escape Earth's gravity. Earth pulls you down, as we say. You would need much more kinetic energy to escape Earth's gravity. As the theoretical cloud of hydrogen atoms increases in mass, more hydrogen atoms are drawn into it, and eventually are squeezed or compacted tightly into a central core. But no one knows exactly how the gas cloud compacts a dense core. Gravity, by itself, is far too weak for the job. No one really knows what gravity is either, by the way, but that's an entirely different topic for a future podcast. Consider spraying air freshener from a can. You can see the mist of gas disperse into the air and fall toward the ground as you release the gas in the canister. The gas, however, will not condense back into the can, try as you might. You might catch some of the gas in your hand, but you couldn't possibly squeeze it tight enough to ignite the fusion of atoms into heavier elements. Nor will the gas naturally gravitate and condense on its own as it falls through the air to the ground. So what is it that causes the hydrogen gas cloud to condense into a core and begin the process of nuclear fusion into helium? It remains one of the greatest mysteries in astronomy. Though solutions have been suggested, like shockwaves of nearby supernovae for example, nothing has been demonstrably proven or tested. Star formation remains mostly in the realm of theoretical rather than experimental astrophysics, as one cannot recreate a star in an observatory or laboratory, save only on paper or in computer models. In a June 2014 paper on star formation theories, astrophysicist Dr. Mark R. Krumholtz notes in the introduction that, quote, Star formation lies at the center of a web of processes that drive cosmic evolution, generation of radiant energy, synthesis of elements, formation of planets, and development of life. Decades of observations have yielded a variety of empirical rules about how it operates. But at present, we have no comprehensive quantitative theory. Chromholtz observes: quote, "There is nothing like a generally agreed-upon theory of star formation, as there is for stellar structure. Instead, we are forced to take a much more phenomenological approach." End quote. It is a 91-page article with an extensive nine-page bibliography. So what is meant by a phenomenological approach? Essentially, that means astronomers will take the observable empirical information they have about stars and draw conclusions about that data, conclusions that often cannot finally be empirically tested or reproduced in a laboratory. A great deal of star formation theory rests upon mathematical descriptions and abstract hypotheses, as Krummholtz's paper attests. Of course, there is absolutely nothing wrong with theorizing about the mechanics behind how stars form. People have dedicated their lives to studying the heavens and all their amazing wonders. Astronomy is a fascinating and very satisfying line of work, as Chapman attests in her book. Her delight and joy in studying the stars comes through in every page, and as noted previously, she has a knack for conveying a difficult subject into understandable prose. But it is important to emphasize that star formation remains a mostly theoretical branch of astrophysics. It is believed that Population 3 stars all died violent supernovae deaths, and that these detonations and their subsequent shockwaves all contributed to the creation of the stars we see today. So for the sake of argument, let's grant that all happened. But what keeps the core of a newly forming star from just blowing itself apart? By the time the core of an infant star has formed and ignited, it is allegedly surrounded and enveloped by a massive amount of other gas and dust that has been collecting around the core. This exterior mass of gas and dust is perfectly balanced, not too much or it would crush the core, causing the primordial star to prematurely collapse on itself, and not too little, for if there wasn't enough exterior mass, the nuclear pressure of the core would simply blow off all the outer gas and dust. So it is a theoretical balancing act between outward pressure of nuclear fusion in the core of a star and the inward or external pressure of the accumulated mass of gas and dust pressing down on the center. As Chapman notes, quote, Stars are gigantic thermonuclear devices. Alarming. End quote. So we here on Earth are surrounded by enormous thermonuclear bombs, but yet somehow an explosion of one of these bombs, supernovae, is a relatively rare occurrence in the universe. How did these nuclear powerhouses form? How were they able to hold themselves together in their infancy? It is one of the greatest mysteries in astronomy. The reality is, no one has ever seen a star form from beginning to end. What astronomers often do is extrapolate from observed star behavior what they assume goes on in the process of star formation. So here we are confronted with several mysteries. One. ...is that there is no fundamental theory that has been proven as to how stars form. It is mind-boggling that no one really knows how a gas cloud condensed to produce a core... ...or how the incredibly precise balance between nuclear fusion and gravitational forces... ...has allegedly occurred over and over and over and over again ad infinitum... ...all by chance without the artifice of any intelligence or guiding agency... Given the uncountable multitude of stars in the cosmos, this is utterly mind-boggling when you really consider the implications. Emma calls hydrogen clouds that eventually form into stars as lucky. It is really much easier, when you think about it, to explain the existence of stars as having been created, fully formed as they are, more or less, than to explain them in terms of a long, slow, gradual, unguided process of atoms being squeezed together randomly. Two, though absolutely necessary in star formation theory, not a single population three star has ever been discovered. Not one. Current theories suggest you need pre-existing stars to create stars, So how did the first star form, if there was such a thing as Chapman imagines? There were no supernovae shockwaves, nothing but gravity and a loose coalition of hydrogen atoms floating about. Gravity is not strong enough on its own to condense a cloud of hydrogen. There has to be another force of some kind that acts on the cloud to squeeze it into a nuclear core. But no one knows what that might even be. So here is a singular case about how a model of the universe suggests that there ought to be a particular kind of object within the universe. But when that object eludes empirical detection, perhaps the model, as beneficial as it has been in making certain other discoveries, may not be entirely correct. But what is fundamentally missing from Emma's book is the question of teleology or purpose in the cosmos. It is clear she has taken great delight in studying the stars, and there is no doubt she certainly believes such a pursuit fills her life with meaning and purpose. But do the stars she studies have a purpose? Theologian and emeritus professor at Georgetown University, John F. Haught, asks, quote, In the age of science, can we honestly believe that the universe has any purpose? Is it credible to claim that something of everlasting importance is working itself out in the universe? Of all the questions of science and religion, I believe the most fundamental is whether the universe has a purpose, end quote. But of course, purpose suddenly introduces a personal element into the story of the cosmos. Though Emma is very warm and down to earth in her prose throughout her book as she describes the science behind the universe, the science itself, the numbers, data, technology, research and the like, are all by nature impersonal when it comes to the conclusions drawn about the cosmos itself. It is something similar to studying the chemical composition of a red rose petal and concluding that its material constituents are all a rose really is. The beauty of the red rose, what it has traditionally thought to represent in art, music, poetry, and human relationships, all of that is completely ignored in the laboratory as it cannot be quantified and represented in an equation. And so the physicists tell us that a red rose is just the sum total of the parts we have empirically uncovered in the lab, and nothing more. There is no teleology behind it, or to suggest purpose is more a fool's errand, in the eyes of a microscope anyway. Consider that for the most of their history, the microscope and telescope required those who used them to close one eye. I think the analogy apropos for our time we have lost our depth perception when it comes to engaging the physical universe. We have settled for an impersonal one-dimensional reductionism. The universe is just the sum total of atoms and the void, with no particular purpose for why it is arranged as we see it. For Christians, to embrace the science of the cosmos, or any science for that matter, into our apologetics, we must do so with both eyes wide open. In our eagerness to give our faith a kind of scientific respectability in the eyes of an unbelieving world that has come to value scientific judgment as sacrosanct, we must be careful not to downplay or de-emphasize the personal, unquantifiable aspects of the physical world. Consider some lines from the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins, quote, The world is charged with the grandeur of God, it will flame out like shining from a shook foil, End quote. Or, quote, look at the stars, look, look up at the skies. Oh, look at all the firefolks sitting in the air, the bright burrows, the circle citadels there. contrast these poetic lines with Emma Chapman's description of the stars as thermonuclear devices, we might ask ourselves what the more appropriate description would be. Shall we think of the stars only in terms of our modern scientific understanding and concepts? Is there wisdom in retaining a poetic understanding of the stars as firefolk and circle citadels? Or is the poetry all merely superfluous imagination that is of no practical, quantifiable use to a scientist? David proclaims in Psalm 19 that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. In that sense, the heavens are heralds, citadels, messengers, firefolk, making silent proclamations of speech and knowledge day after day and night after night. How tragic it is that their message has largely been ignored in the fields of astronomy and cosmology in the last century. Stars certainly can be understood in terms of engines of incredible nuclear firepower. But how much more prone are we to accept the scientific language over and against the poetic? Poetry is discarded because it can't be quantified or calculated. What hath poetry to do with dark matter, for example? Much in every way, poetic expression is still foundational to scientific expression, though it may never appear as obvious that the scientist is using literary devices and descriptions when he communicates. Stars are like nuclear devices. The universe is a machine. Stars are firefolk. Simile and metaphor are employed in our descriptions of the universe, be they scientific or poetic. But increasingly, we have come to assume, through the conditioning through the metaphor of the machine, that the best way to understand the cosmos is through technological means. Thus, we build spaceships, satellites, and telescopes, and send geologists instead of poets to the moon. The poet, philosopher, theologian, musician, artist, and author are all relegated to the antiquated realm of the imagination and feelings, and we are told have nothing legitimate to contribute to the nature of the universe as science understands it. As poet Malcolm Guide observes, however, In an age of linear, one-level readings of the word and the world, we need to recover confidence in the baptized imagination as a truth-bearing faculty. Because, be it known, the human imagination is alive and well in the sciences whenever a scientist begins building a model of reality. Physicist Sabine Hassenfelder observes, quote, "...the invention of new natural laws, theory development, is not taught in classes and not explained in textbooks. Some of it physicists learn studying the history of science, but most of it they pick up from older colleagues, friends and mentors, supervisors and reviewers. Handed from one generation to the next, much of it is experience, a hard-earned intuition for what works... When asked to judge the promise of a newly invented but untested theory, physicists draw upon the concepts of naturalness, simplicity, or elegance and beauty. They are invaluable and in utter conflict with the scientific mandate of objectivity. I'm not sure anymore that what we do here in the foundations of physics is science." And note here what astrophysicist Paul Sutter suggests between the lines about human imagination and model building regarding Population 3 stars. Quote, While I'd love to give you more details, the formation of the first stars is shrouded in mystery. Part of the problem is observational. As far as we can tell, and we've looked really, really hard, there are no Population 3 stars remaining in our present-day universe since bigger stars lead to shorter lives due to the increased ferocity of their nuclear reactions that's a clue they must have been heavy beasts but stars are not linear creatures complex flows of gas and matter are not easily solved with a piece of chalk predictions for the relationships between matter radiation and nuclear forces are not for the faint of heart understanding this epoch requires serious horsepower in the form of sophisticated computer simulations that attempt to recreate the physics of these early epochs. It's a tough business, recapitulating the universe in silicon, and usually requires a wealth of observational data to constrain and constrict the theoretical models. Note it requires a concentration of the imagination to come up with and create computer simulations of the universe. You are essentially building your own cosmos using a complicated amalgam of code, computations, and equations. But how would one write God into such a computer simulation? The unspoken reality is that the computer programmer designing the universe does tacitly take upon themselves the role of an omniscient being in some sense. But of course, science and technology are often silent on the questions about God, purpose, meaning, love, relationships, beauty, truth, poetry, wonder and a host of other aspects of our ontology. These things don't neatly factor into a computer simulation of the universe. And more disturbingly, the absence of such things in our lives quickly engenders despair and hopelessness. Why then must we be so eager to embrace a technological and mechanistic view of the universe that doesn't account for the most important aspects of our humanity? We shouldn't. For all the potential apologetic applications that might emanate from science affirming that our universe had a beginning, there is an immense cost in embracing a scientific theory that is a priori disposed toward a quantified and impersonal reductionism. A reductionism that cannot and does not wish to explain cosmic and or human ontology and teleology as anything more than a shimmer of neurological chemicals that afford us some ambiguous sense of survival. So is there a purpose for the stars and for the universe? Yes, they exist as creations of the Lord Jesus Christ and are silent declarations of his glory. This purpose is, of course, far greater than ourselves. The universe is finally not about us. As Haught notes, quote, purpose, if real, would grasp us more than we could grasp it. We could encounter purpose only if we let it take hold of us and carry us away in its intoxicating beauty. Hott also points out that, quote, whatever purpose the universe might have can never be made completely clear to mortals, end quote. And indeed, this is a truth. The heavens declare the glory of God, but we only know this glory in part, as the Apostle Paul observes in 1 Corinthians 13. The preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us to let our words be few, as we are on the earth and God is in heaven. This is the lesson of the book of Job, where God asks his beleaguered servant, quote, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? Can you loose the cords of Orion or bind the chains of the Pleiades? Quote. There is no satisfactory answer Job can give to Yahweh. What we do know of the heavens makes us realize that there is far more we will never know as mere mortals before an omniscient creator. In response to the problem of evil discussed throughout the book of Job, God's answer is a lengthy discourse about creation. A commentary on Genesis in the form of questions and statements, each of which have rich, unfathomable implications for the glory of God. But consider the scientific model for the origin of the universe. It is a model of the beginning of the universe, not the actual beginning of the universe. The model itself fails to explain a variety of actually observed phenomenon in the cosmos. This is not to say the model is entirely wrong or completely useless, but it is to emphasize that it is but a model and that it does not accurately account for everything. And increasingly, the fields of cosmology and cosmogony are becoming less and less dependent upon empirical evidence and driven more by purely mathematical and theoretical knowledge that only a handful of specialists can understand or articulate. Theoretical knowledge is becoming the norm when it comes to the questions of cosmic origins. Mathematician George Ellis observes that, quote, the cosmological ideas and physical theories put forward are seen as being so compelling that we can loosen the need for empirical testing. This is a dangerous tactic, end quote. Ellis goes on to note that, quote, statements about the nature of and causes of the origins of the universe will of necessity always be speculative rather than proved science. Attempts to claim one has solved the issue of the origin of the universe and of cosmologia on the basis of scientifically testable theories are unfounded. They are attempts to pass off philosophical predilections as established science. They mislead the public about what science can say about important issues." In short, the universe as a whole, its origin and structure, are being defined by a cadre of specialists who espouse their philosophies as sacrosanct scientific conclusions. They also take little or no thought for God or the personal aspects of the universe. When human life is factored into the highly specialized equations, we are often told by such specialists that we are cosmically insignificant, that our existence was unintentional and purposeless, that we are nothing more than an interesting amalgam of atoms and chemicals. If we accept the Big Bang, for example, we can unintentionally accept a host of other impersonal, mechanistic, and naturalistic assumptions that go along with it, including conceding to the scientists the right to shape and define reality. But Big Bang cosmology is, by its very nature, mechanistic, impersonal, and purposeless. We must avoid tacitly conceding the impersonal and purposeless implications of Big Bang cosmology when we include it in our apologetics. We must guard against allowing its impersonal connotations to dictate how we understand our theology. This is not to say one cannot cultivate dialogue with unbelievers using Big Bang science, but very few people are conversant in the language of cosmology and cosmogony, Is one to become a scientist? How many scientific papers ought one to read on Big Bang cosmology? How many astrophysicists must one know? Do we need the Big Bang in our defense of the faith? No, it is not fundamentally necessary that we use the science of the universe to show the universe had a beginning. Moses understood this long before 20th century Big Bang cosmology came along. And prior to the 20th century, as philosopher Tawa Anderson observes, quote, The logical argument for the beginning of the universe was the only non-religious argument on the table. It was and remains sufficient. We do not need supporting scientific evidence to establish the truth of the premise the universe began to exist. Thinkers of all worldviews and disciplines understood that a contingent entity such as the universe could not be self-existent or eternal and thus needed to have a beginning. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, were understood by Christians to be divine revelation in concord with human reason. End quote. In short, there are several simple philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe that don't require or demand one must possess specialized scientific knowledge. Long before the advent of modern science as we know it, both theology and philosophy provided, and still provide, sound reasoning that our universe had a beginning, and thus is the creation of God himself. It is also important to note that there are a number of fundamental differences between the Big Bang as it is put forth as a model and the text of creation found in Genesis. Which is more primary, Big Bang science or Genesis? For the believer, Genesis should be primary. But in an age where scientific authority and scientific knowledge are preferred over and above all other kinds of authority and knowledge, it is necessary we are always alert in not allowing ourselves to be conformed to the world of theoretical science and its practitioners who seek to shape and define the universe and our place within it, apart from God. In the end, for secular science, what is the ultimate purpose of spending so much time and effort and money to understand something that, by their own definitions, has no real meaning or purpose? The late physicist Stephen Weinberg once quipped that the more he studied the universe— the more it seemed to him that it was pointless. And many of his colleagues agree. So what is the point of studying something that apparently has no point? But what if scientists one day figured it all out? Then what? What would such an intellectual accomplishment yield? What if Emma Chapman found her population three stars? What if cosmologists found evidence of a multiverse? What if physicists discovered the equation that explains everything? For the scientist who leaves God out of the equations, the answer would be something close to what Shakespeare penned in Macbeth centuries ago. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. End quote. But the Word of God tells us a much different story. God spoke the entirety of the heavens and the earth and all they contain into existence. He didn't take parts of His divine nature to make the universe, nor did He use any pre existing material. God spoke things into being. His Word has the power to create, ex nihilo, from nothing. His spoken words brought into being everything we behold in the physical world and even those things we cannot see. Creation does not contain parts of God himself. Otherwise, what he created would essentially share his divine nature. God spoke light into being. And when it comes to the stars, we are only told almost as an afterthought, quote, and he created the stars also, end quote. Genesis gives us no physical details about the mechanics of how stars came to be, We are simply told that God created them. That star formation from a scientific perspective remains shrouded in mystery attests to the fact that God and God alone is the only one who knows how stars came to be. God is the only one who knows how the universe came to be. Again, and we cannot emphasize this enough, we must be circumspect in incorporating secular models of the cosmos into our theology. For when we import such knowledge into our thinking, we can easily become conditioned to the impersonal and mechanical aspects of scientific thought. And we can slowly forget the uniqueness and primacy of God's revealed word to us. As David extols just before his death, "...Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Thine is the dominion, O Lord." And thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. End quote. As David so eloquently expresses in Psalm nineteen, quote, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse shows forth his workmanship. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. End quote. Astronomy and cosmology exist as disciplines solely because the universe is proclaiming a silent and intelligible language that we, in a limited sense, can indeed comprehend. Creation reflects God's invisible attributes and points us to himself. As Paul says in Colossians, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. End quote. For us as Christians, then, it is paramount we do not allow science to have first place in everything. When we incorporate scientific knowledge into our witness and apologetics, we must do so with great care and circumspection, Always being aware of putting Christ first, holding fast to what is personal, true, lovely, and good. Being transformed by the renewing of our minds, not allowing the secular purveyors of the cosmos to shape and define reality apart from Christ, who made it and sustains all things. We must resist the temptation to make scientific models of reality the foundation for our understanding of the world we inhabit especially when those models carry within them certain anti-theological biases. This is not to say we cannot incorporate certain kinds of scientific knowledge into our witness if we are able. Rather, we must be aware of the implications of doing so and strive to retain the wonder, majesty, and glory of God in our understanding of the universe. The glory of God in Christ our Lord is the true light of the world, that he is the only one who is in possession of the true nature of the origin and structure of the universe. We are exhorted to seek him, for in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Any model of the cosmos that takes little or no consideration for Christ is, at best, incomplete, and at worst, tragically misguided and false. Without him, scientists are at a loss to come up with purely mechanical models of how the universe and the stars came to be. Once more, we must be circumspect when incorporating scientific knowledge into our witness and theology. Jesus is the Christ, the beloved Son of the living God, the bright and morning star, our sun and shield, the star of Jacob, the creator and Lord of the heavens and earth and all they contain. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the very one who switched on the stars at the dawn of time.